we've done this joke before. Have we? Yeah, we did at the beginning of the Portal 2 podcast. Remember, you said... Uh, oh, yeah. Really got a... podcast reserves. I think we need to brush up these old podcasts. Maybe we should listen to them. Hello and welcome to episode 13 of the Split Screen Podcast. My name is Craig Wilson. I am joined once again by the wonderful Alan Williamson. <laughs> you are joined once again by... The Alan Williamson. The Alan Williamson. Good afternoon, today, Craig. The, good afternoon, the Alan. Today we're going to be talking about what have games taught us? Um, certainly in terms of podcast introductions, clearly nothing is the no. answer, <laughs> given the number of games I've played. Um, this one has kind of been, I guess, gestating for a while. Um, a couple of months ago, I wrote a feature about um, what did a game teach me about love? And the answer was not nothing. a lot, really. Yeah. Um, so I guess, yeah, we just wanted to expand that and talk about well, you know, what is a game taught us about anything? I think that was one of the lines I used in my hyperbolic piece. Uh, <laughs> as I like to do, throwing out grand questions that never get answered. Who cares? Who cares? Um, so, yeah, what's a, what's a game taught you? You know, don't, don't, don't rush in, Craig. Just start talking. Well, it's, it's that terrible thing. It's because a lot, of, a lot of games, majority of games, it's entertainment. And they entertain me perfectly well. A lot of people, a lot of people when you ask them, well, why do you play games? They'll say, escape it. Escaping from reality. Really? Do people really say that? Because most people just go, I don't know, it's, it's something to do. I've got that. No, you've, you've said that in a letter to me. Those exact words, escape yeah, from reality. Yeah, but that was me. This is somebody that actually you know, thinks okay, about sorry. it, writes when about it. I guess them. when I said normal people. Okay, when you ask normal people why they play games, they'll say for entertainment. So, and when you ask incredibly introspective game critics, they say escape from reality. Yeah, or that it's pushing the art form yeah. um, and that it's the new greatest thing ever. I say, I say escape, but I think what I really mean is blocking it out because there is no escape from this. Yeah, it's a kind of it's, it's it's the same escape that I want when I'm reading a book. I just want to be entertained yeah. by something and have something provoke a thought that I wouldn't have had had I not been reading. I know a lot of people get annoyed with the word immersion, but it's about being engrossed in it. Yeah, you're not you're not you're not escaping anything. Obviously, in the same way you go on holiday, you're not escaping whatever it is you come back to, but you're engrossed in something else and it takes your mind off things, and that's what's nice. Mm. Um, one of the the first things I'd sort of thought of with this was that although games are obviously made by human beings. I don't think we've reached the, the singularity yet. Um, <laughs> although they're made by humans, they don't really have a lot of humanity. So whenever you get something like, I don't know, an author, film director, or somebody writing a novel, a lot of that they're putting, you know, they are putting their personality into it, and that's because it's one person making that. Yeah. Whereas, you know, games are made by teams of often tens, tens to hundreds of people. Yeah. Um, and even when you have one or two people doing it, um, they don't really put a lot of their own humanity across. Yeah, I mean, you've seen there's, there's like different structures that they can organize their 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 teams of um developers and things like that and you might have like in double fine you've got tim schaefer at the top so you've got that one creative lead and you can tell that they're all coming up with ideas but they all ultimately will filter up to him and then the ones that he wants are the ones that go in and he gives yeah. it that direction so he's like the director but if you're trying to tell something quite personal or quite intimate i imagine it'd be a lot harder to do that because you'd have to try to get everyone on the levels below you to sort of have that the right ethos or have like the right emotion or, yeah. I don't know it'd be well I mean a lot of the uh, I guess I'm trying to think of people who are like really individual distinct directors and the kind of ones that spring to mind are like David Cage who did Heavy Rain and Fahrenheit mm. and Hideo Kojima you know those are the only people that really well, you would assume have that kind of artistic vision, but I don't think even Kojima, like certainly in Metal Gear Solid Four, I don't think he did everything. I think he more kind of floated around in a cloud around the project. I don't know if he was like yeah, and I guess I guess everything. you can still have a really strong creative voice, and you don't necessarily need to be the dictator. Um, George A. Romero, I was speaking about him earlier on film on set. 
he doesn't direct the zombies one because he says you can't direct zombies you just tell them to do something and they'll do something different anyway um, but he enjoys that but he is actually quite open although he writes the script and he knows what he's going to go and shoot he's very open to the actors trying yeah. to take it in a slightly different direction the gadlibbing things and yeah, yeah, so running, guess, running with it yeah, yeah so and all on um, Metal Gear Solid 2 Hideo Kojima gave out these idea books and just blank pads of paper he would give them out to his staff mm-hmm. and they would sketch little ideas or write ideas that they would think found for the story of the plot and one number of stuff came out of that the idea of leaning against the wall and looking around the corner uh, the idea of spraying bombs with something to freeze them and those are like really major elements of yeah, the game yeah the leaning around the corner is pretty integral and you can say okay well the, the, the gameplay stuff maybe it was a gameplay guy who came up with it but then that concept of having the bomb freezing bombs well, that might have led then to the character of Stillman, who then becomes... He's a terrible character. He's the one who has a, he has a fake leg and a fake limp. So those ideas might flow up back into the creative uh-huh. sphere again. But yeah, maybe we do need more um, individual like authors of, of stories and authors of games, like, yeah, mm-hmm. I don't know, Jonathan Blow. Um, well, see, Super Meat Boy was done by a team of two, but Super Meat Boy wasn't exactly high-concept art. Well, I would say, even though it wasn't something you would say of story-wise, World of Goo had to very distinct voice to it yeah I wonder I don't even know how many people were in 2D boy 2 2 D boy yeah. cool there we go <laughs> well, there we go uh. <laughs> and so you're I think you're more likely going to get something that will maybe question your your preconceptions out of a smaller team than you would a larger team something that will challenge you either intellectually in terms of its themes or content like a, a book or a film could yeah well this is it books are written by generally one or two people. Yeah. But, um, I mean, one of the things that games never deal with, well, at least they, they try to deal with it, but they deal with it in such a, a superficial and perfunctory way that it just ends up irritating me is how they deal with morality and ethics. <laughs> and, of course, this is the classic uh, save the baby, eat the baby. <laughs> and I think I talked about Mass Effect 3, which, you know, at least acknowledges the nutritional value of the baby, as I have put it. <laughs> but, um, I mean, you'd, you'd said to me about, you know, you're kind of well, how you felt playing an RPG well, well yeah I mean a lot of RPGs a lot of Bioware RPGs where you've got this choice of how you want to go about it you either go in guns a blazing or you sneak in so ultimately you're either a sociopath or just a kleptomaniac <laughs> like you're like I will save this town but then while you're there you plunder everything of value within the house and you just they're just standing there watching you or maybe they've got their back turned and then when they turn around they don't notice that their kitchen is now devoid of everything that was there well, that's what I used to do in Fable was he wait until the shopkeeper's back was turned and then steal a sword <laughs> and then sell it to him and then he put it back on the shelf and then you'd steal it again nice one but yeah it's um, while you can have interesting moral dilemma uh, choices i think some of them they're softening a bit it's not as black and white as as it used to be but oftentimes you're still coming coming into some scenario where there's you go into a town class example and there's a conflict team a wants to kill team b for yeah. some reason and you might settle that by either killing team a or killing team b or resolving the issue for everyone involved but uh, this is more i'm thinking about the fallout games and maybe that's the wrong choice but yeah. you tend not to come into a situation where it's not life or death you don't come into a sort of interesting moral situation where it's like, well, do you help the person just because you think it's good to help someone rather than it being offset always by some sort of gain um, if you if you do something evil? Well, I mean, generally you kind of just accumulate good points or bad points. Um, at the moment yeah. I'm playing Baldur's Gate, um, which is not like that at all. And although it has aged 
and you know I'm sure I'll discuss this at some point. So mm-hmm. let's not let's not waste all my creative juices in one uh, <laughs> one podcast. But um, I don't know if it's a Dungeons and Dragons thing or if it's a Baldur's Gate thing, but it's basically got nine types of morality. So you've kind of got good, neutral, and evil. Um, oh, so and, it's then chaotic. Yeah, you've got like chaotic, and then like pure, and then something else. I probably should have done some research before this, but either way, there are definitely yeah. nine stances. What those are is ambiguous and open to interpretation. Super. Yeah, super good. Super evil. There's, there's no. It's. I think it's lawful and, and oh, you, yes, it, it it's lawful yeah. and chaotic. So you can be like a kind of chaotic goodie, where it's like you don't really care what you do, but you'll 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 do whatever you feel is right. And there's lawful good where you're gonna play by the book. But the thing about Baldur's Gate is that you'll meet these characters, and there's one sort of side quest where the these fishermen are complaining that a witch has cursed them. So you walk your way up the coast towards where the witch lives, and she's like, "Well, no, I'm not actually a witch," and they, they stole some magic stone from this god that i worship so you go back and you're like you guys are talking out of your arse aren't they and they go yeah but kill her anyway we'll give you loads of money and so with a lot of those scenarios there isn't actually any right or wrong and mm-hmm. you don't know so it's a i think it's a it's funny that that game's so old now i mean it must be about well, 99 2000 but yeah. yet it's it actually has genuine moral ambiguity but i think that's because there's so many different ways in which you can affect it i mean mm-hmm. you know fable 2 had good and bad and then it had the new concept of fat versus thin, which yeah. <laughs> didn't really change much, but with this one, you're not quite sure what's going to happen, and so sometimes you can be like, you know, leave this guy alone, or you can be like, I just don't care. Yeah. And there's other, you'll get into situations where you come to this inn, and this person I said, I'm like, ha, are you, I, I called my guy Longstride, because I thought that, so it sounded like that Robin Hood film, and I got this <laughs> kind of cheesy Robin Hood vibe about it. So he so says, oh, are you, are you Longstride? And you can say, yep, that's me, or no, or never heard of that mm. guy. And I tried like every single conversation possibility, and no matter what I said, he always got into a fight with this person. Because you'd say, I'm Longstride, and he'd go, great, I'm here to kill you. <laughs> or you could say, I'm not Longstride, and he'd go, I don't believe you, and I'm also here to kill you. Kill, yeah. Or you could say, who's Longstride? And you go, then he said, nice try, Longstride, I'm actually going to kill you. <laughs> uh, so, um, but it was, it was interesting to see if there's a way out of that. Yeah. And it was quite good that in a lot of these games, um, there is no way out, mm. or at least that one kind of compounded it and made you feel like, yeah, there really is no way out of this, I'm going to have to kill him, rather than giving you the illusion that your decisions matter. This is just like, nah. We're actually going to have to bludgeon so, this So guy. was that one where you, you went through all three options? Mm-hmm. So you didn't choose one option and then kind of reload back a little bit and then say, well, I wonder what door two would have been like. Well, the problem is that Baldur's Gate is such a difficult game that every time I got into a fight with this person, I died. And right. so I was trying to see if there's a scenario in which I would not die. Oh, okay, okay. That, that's that's the game where you really have to you have to quick save yeah. constantly. So, I mean, I'm thinking, um, thinking back to when I was playing through Blade Runner, I mean, that really had interesting moral decisions i guess because you're you're trying to track down replicants which i say is this person human or not and then do you kill them or do you not so you do get that choice in the game yeah but when you make those choices it's not flagged up to you that you are making a grand decision right now um it's just the reticule over your mouse goes red and you go oh i can if i've got my gun out i can shoot this guy but it's not um it's not saying like you've you've reached an adequate number of uh, points in our counting system that now deems it possible for you to choose whether to shoot this person or not. Oh, okay. Sometimes so it, it you just, doesn't tell you've reached the end of the conversation tree or anything no, like, like that? No, like this character has said, has given you enough plot exposition, so you may now dispose of them because we don't need him anymore to tell our story. No, you can just gun him down and then that chain is gone. So it doesn't well, let- that chain is gone, that, that angle you, where you might learn more, because at this point you're questioning whether or not you're, you're actually a replicant. Can you get stuck in Blade Runner? I, I imagine so. <laughs> I, I, I'm, you must, you're not picking up you're picking up clues, mm-hmm. and you're not combining them as things. So you're never really in a locked 
room puzzle environment. Oh, okay. But uh, you could come out of it. I guess the way you would get stuck is that you wouldn't have a clear idea of what's going on because, they, again, they question your reality in it. But so the moral decisions there are, do you turn in, do you sympathize with the replicants or do you, uh, do, you, do, you, do you just stick with your gun and gun them down? But because they're sort of taking the source text of the Android stream of Electric Sheep, I guess you can actually get in a little more interesting yeah, you know, creative, creative get- juice there more than if you're just making a game from scratch. I don't know if they would be able to pitch it at that. Or level Blade Runner, the game of the the game of the film, the book. Well, no, yeah, it's much more much more riffing on the film. But if you look at any of the later episodes of my Let's Play, you'll you'll see some of those decisions happening, and they're just not flagged up. Is this a way of you subtly saying? Advertise. I can't believe you didn't watch my video. Only ten people watched it. Only ten people. It's about by the end. There were only about ten. Well, it's gonna be eleven by the end of this bank holiday weekend. <laughs> I'll tell you that. Or at least from the first part of the video, you know. Yeah. I've only got so much patience. <laughs> but it's funny how you're talking about um, getting the player to kind of empathise with the replicants because a lot of games don't do that. A lot of games just give you these faceless antagonists to blow away. Like, one of the things yeah. that surprised me about the Gears of War trilogy is I thought they were going to give you some motivation for why the Locusts were doing what they were doing. Yeah. But they, they didn't. They were just ugly monsters to blow away or, I don't know, the, the Strog from Quaker, another murderous race that you have to blow away. They... I mean, okay, the Covenant from Halo, they're kind of like religious nutters, mm-hmm. so I guess there's some kind of motivation there, but you, you end up you know, siding with some of them, but um, with a lot of these games like, I guess the kind of comparison I would want to draw is between kind of dystopian fiction, like, you know, Brave mm-hmm. New World, Orwell's 1984, mm-hmm. where there's all this kind of system of you know different classes. Obviously, in 1984, but 85% of the population of these proles, and you've got the, the untouchable casts, and them, obviously, that's filtered into a lot of games like Half-Life 2 to some extent where you never really see the upper classes of the Combine, Knights of the Old Republic whenever you go to whatever the first big city's called, it might be called like, I don't know Talos or something like that, right. but for those who have played it and have as bad a memory of it as me, the first place you go to because that happens in a Bioware game, you know you have an introduction, then you go to a big hub world then you go to several smaller hub worlds and then you complete the game <laughs> <laughs> like the Citadel from Mass Effect would be the big hub world right, right um, so in games like Mass Effect, Knights of the Old Republic, they don't actually touch in issues like class warfare. It's clear there's a kind of underclass here, and in most of those games you come from a very privileged. Sorry. Yeah. In most of those games you come from a very privileged background, but that doesn't actually factor into the storytelling of the decisions you make. It's just you shooting things. Some of them have a purple costume, and some of them have a brown costume. Yeah, and it, it just keeps coming back to a lot of problems where if you've got once you put a gun in someone's hand, I think you can't tell as interesting a story. Mm. Um, and if you look at it, for the amount of hours that you'll spend in one of those games, 40 hours, 100 hours, you should, you should be able to layer that stuff in in a way which isn't just a, a text box that you open up and you choose to read in. That's one of the things on Half-Life 2. Although it's got a fantastic, it's a fantastic world, great, well, so well written and acted and set out that first time you go into City 17. Um, I mean, when if I ever go back and reread 1984, it'll probably be with the Half-Life 2 visuals in mind. Mm-hmm than what I had before. But it's kind of there as background dressing. And it's still ultimately a game about running around corridors and shooting guys. It's still just like, because <laughs> you've been given a gun and told to run around corners and shoot guys. It's still like a B-movie. It's still like an exploitation film. Yeah, and there's nothing wrong with that. But yeah. it's just when you, you, when you point to it as a pinnacle of storytelling, it'd be nice if it was a little bit higher mm-hmm. <laughs> like, yeah. like, in terms of literary clout or whatever. Well, there's, games, there's games with better stories than that. But it's certainly got a very good atmosphere. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I guess 
the more we get into these kind of art game discussions and you know games teaching us things advancing you inevitably come back to bioshock mm. because it was you know the, the one of the most at least they at least they tried there's a way i would phrase it. it's probably one of the most meaningful games in terms of like story development and, and trying something different and it is one of these ones I always hold up as you know hey games aren't totally bad but yeah. then whenever you show people a clip from the game you know it's it's, a, it's a guy in a big drill suit and you're shooting him with rivets yeah or it, <laughs> so it's, it's still it's still locked into that old tradition where you've just got these gnarly looking guys full of scars and pus and all that like ghouly bad guy stuff you think well could they dress it up a little cleaner? Maybe Bioshock Infinite will, but not from some of the shots I've seen. Honestly, I am just not that bothered about Bioshock Infinite. And I don't know why, because I'm, I'm sure it's going to be really good. <sighs> but oh, I'm tired. Maybe this is just part of my growing malaise. But, I, well, for a start, I don't even know why it's called Bioshock Infinite, in the same way that Bioshock wasn't called System Shock yeah. underwater. This comes up all the time, though. It's the same way why Dark Knight is, Rises is called Dark Knight Rises and not Batman 3. Because the Dark Knight was such a popular brand name, uh, so you keep it going. It's all it's all about marketing at that level. Batman Begins three. Mm. Well, is he still beginning or is he ending? Um, but yeah, the if there's a gun poking out the bottom right corner, it's going to have to be doing something a bit different for me to really care. Now, I just, I just, yeah, just don't have the interest, mate. Okay, I guess the thing is that. Um, you know, one of the things a game probably well, one of the things that I pick up from a lot of films that I watch and books that I read is this kind of feeling of you know self improvement and introspection. So, the the best fiction that I read and even like the best pieces of other people have have written about games and things that kind of subjective writing. It's all about you know, it's about me taking what I read and applying it to myself and thinking about you know what that says about me and mm-hmm. how can I how do I empathize with this writer or with the characters in this film. And even though games are all about putting you into the position of this character and you know, living through them, if you like, you don't actually, it never reflects back onto you. It's like you're controlling a mannequin mm-hmm. rather than actually, you know, learning something about yourself. And so with Bioshock, you know, I feel like I could have had something good to say there because the whole message was, well, I say the whole message, the whole message for me was about player agency. And it was about telling people that, you know, there's this whole thing about, you can save people, you can choose your own path, but the ultimate message of Bioshock is you actually can't. There is no agency here. Yeah. And it's telling you you're the you're the player and you're you're on rails, no matter how far you try to escape. They're yeah, still they're able to have their cake and eat it too. That was yeah. a little quite coy thing. And you can only really do that trick once. Well that's true. Um, yeah. Although, just... although a lot of other games have riffed on it again, Stanley Parable very much riffed on it. Portal two uh, sorry, Portal as well. The original yeah. one kinda of riffed on it. I think um, Portal Two doesn't really riff on anything. It's just a, it's just a good story, but it doesn't have the same impact that the first Portal did, like in no. terms of actually having something interesting to say. No, I, th- I don't know if I told you actually. I think because we never mentioned it in the Portal Two podcast. I saw, I think it was in Gamma Sutra. So apologies to whoever came up with this, but their um, their reading was that the old Aperture Science stuff, the Cave Johnson era, mm-hmm. that was sort of a commentary about how video game development used to be, where they were just trying things out to try it out. We got some blue stuff that makes you jump high. All right, we're going to coat the walls with it. You know, we're not going to try and 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 then it's uh, and then when you get into the modern day after science, you've got these weird, like mutated things because they're trying to like still have some of that old school idea, but then it's still got to look good and it's all kind of contorted and twisted. But that, I think you're reading it a lot. I've got to say, that yeah. reading onto it. I don't think that's their intent. I think but I just can, thought it was an interesting can... idea. Think of these things you can we can read as far into yeah. them as you want. And you once, know, you a, once again, it's it's games looking at themselves. It's another game 
but has its meta commentary or whatever you want to call it is about what does it mean to be a video game and yeah. I'm so tired of it, man. It's just everywhere. I want, I want to see a game that talks about something else. We need to have games that talk about people, talk about how people interact yeah. with each other and you know what that means for us because it's kind of like this weird echo chamber where if games only talk about themselves, that's that's only mm-hmm. gonna, you know, that's, just, that's not going to improve anything, is and, it? Yeah, and you can get certain games that look at these relationships. I just don't think they're in the places that we're looking at. So if you've got uh, four guys around the table and you're playing... Dominion, or you're playing Settlers of Catan, uh-huh. or you're playing Carcassonne, or something. You've got okay the game of placing down tiles to build a town, but you then also have this idea of well, you know, I'm going to work with you only until I get to this point, and yeah. then I'm going to actually stab you in the back. I'm going to work with this guy, and so you, you kind of can get to like some relationship conflict kind of stuff there, which is kind of interesting. One um, of the um, one of the, the yeah. best board games I've played is the Battlestar Galactica board game. Oh, I've been told about this. Yeah, yeah. So the basic premise with the TV show. For those of you who haven't watched it, you know we can't assume everybody's a total nerd. <laughs> I've never seen it. Actually. I've never seen it. No. I've watched the first couple of episodes, but I know quite a lot of it from the board game. So the idea with Battlestar Galactica is there's these aliens called Cylons, mm-hmm. um, and they are like replicants. They basically just look like humans. Okay. And there are some of them on this Galactica ship, and they don't know that they're Cylons, but they can be they're like sleeper agents that can be activated at any time. So some of them know, and some of them don't. Mm-hmm. So in the Battlestar Galactica board game, everybody draws this allegiance card when they first start playing and so you can either be um a human a cylon or a confederate yeah and so the idea behind the board game is galactica's trying to get to this safe world it's called cobalt um and so you have to like repel attacks and work as a team and everybody has individual skills but you chuck in these cards to it's, it's kind of instead of a rolling rolling in a, a die you spend these point cards that you accumulate and so you can throw in bad cards to set back the human progress and you know, d- diminish the progress. Mm-hmm. And there's a couple that come from a random pile, so you're never sure if people have contributed or not. So woven through the game, there's this whole theme of dis- you know, mistrust and yeah. lies. But then what happens is halfway through the game, everybody draws another allegiance card. And so you could end up definitely being a human. There only, there's only ever one Cylon in a four-player game. And if you have a six-player, you get two Cylons and you often get um, one sympathizer gets locked oh, in the brink nice. <laughs> and if you're a sympathizer you have to immediately draw that yeah. but you can reveal yourself as a Cylon at any point and like sabotage the ship or you can stay there for as long as possible yeah. and so even though you're with people who are your friends these amazing psychological mind games and it, it, it kind of shows you how well you don't actually know people like yeah. how, how well people can lie yeah and reading in that's, and that's where you know I guess I don't want to like push it too much but you can get some of that in poker and things like that those rudimentary card games where you've got the game that's on the table but then the game that's in the player's head and between the players there's the game and the game um but when with a lot of these sort of narrative video games think of like alan wake say which was well written i think although again well written again kind of about a game about video games especially when you get to the end and you're just shooting placeholder names and then a tree appears (sighs) but It's kind of got three layers to me. You've got the story, what's happening in the world, what the developers are to say, and then how that relates to the character of Alan Wake. Mm-hmm. And then you've got the fact that Alan Wake needs to relate to how I control him or I control Alan Wake. So you've got this like three layers to get through. And so ultimately what's happening in the story in the world isn't necessarily what I'm having to make Alan Wake do because I'm having to make him point flashlights at people and jump over trees. But suddenly it's about him and his wife, but I'm not really doing anything. no. Well, I'm not doing anything to the wife because that would be rude. But, you know, I'm not doing anything <laughs> to Alan Wake. Wait, which is why in, in Heavy Rain, 
it's kind of interesting where you can sort of have meals with your family or in the darkness i believe there's a part at the beginning of the game you come home you find your girlfriend's house you can sit down and watch to kill a mockingbird with her it's on the television and it's the full movie and i think you can sit there on the couch with her and do certain prompts like sort of put your arm around her um or just you know little mundane things but that's kind of that's slightly more interesting area to take it where you might learn something there or you might see, you might explore a different part of a character or yourself there saying well i wouldn't really i can't be bothered sitting watching this nonsense well yeah it's it's, it's only interesting in the same sense that watching the tv in gta is interesting where you sit down and do it and you go but, that's quite interesting but i think in the payoff of the, the darkness is whether or not you choose to stay with your girlfriend and tell her about what's happening or not Okay. So there is still a decision there. It's not just a window dressing, which like all that stuff in GTA. That's all that is. It's window dressing. It's fluff, isn't it? Yeah, it's just noise to, to to say like this world is alive and breathing. When you think, whenever you think about why do people watch soap operas? Why do they watch like you know? Why do you watch a program like The Royal Family or something like that, yeah. which is essentially about the banal existence of a family? But you do it because. It, it's different. It's, so true. it's because it's different from normal life. Yeah. Because it is more dramatic, and you know, there, there are things people can learn about themselves from watching those things. Whereas sitting down and watching the TV in GTA is really, really pointless because you're, you know, you're a fake person watching fake television. Yeah. At that point, I would be like, maybe I should just watch some actual television. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Not to not to be too controversial or anything here, but with a lot of games, they have this inherent unrealism where. It's all about completion and winning and having mechanical things to do rather than the, the experience. So, you know, Alan Wake is ultimately, it is a story about this guy looking for his lost wife in a ghost town. But when you boil it down to it, it's about shooting monsters and shining lights yeah. on them. And it's like, we haven't figured out how to turn stories into games. If you have something like, um, I don't know, I just saw the Avengers film during the week, which is really good. Right. Do, do go watch it. Okay, so if you have the Avengers, the movie... A lot of those action scenes remind me of games, but whenever you try to translate that, that into a game, what do you have? You have quick time events. You have you have <laughs> you have cutscene. Yep. Here's what we'll have to do: action away and do it. Yeah. Victory cutscene, action sequence, victory cutscene, quick time, action sequence, and so they can't. We haven't figured a way to tell the story in the context of the game. That's what makes Half Life so good is because you never leave the eyes of the character mm-hmm. and it's been folding through you. Whether the story's good or not, that's a good way to tell it, and. Obviously, you know, we're, as usual, backpedaling on the podcast we did before, uh, as our own. Well, we did one about stories. Oh, we did? Yes, yeah, so we did. <laughs> you know, let's just do it again. Why not? You can, we're, hear, we're, you can hear my confused face there as I tried to search through and see what was you happening. Hear, you can hear the crumbled wrinkles. Um, but in a lot of these games, you know, if, you, if you're watching a film, the hero doesn't necessarily have to succeed. Yeah. Um, but whenever you're um, in a game, you know, hero kind of has to win. Otherwise, yeah. you feel like... What was, the, what was the point of that? Yeah, I think um, if, if you think it was Cormac McCarthy and The Road, uh, it's like an example. If that was Cormac McCarthy's The Road, the game, <laughs> then, <laughs> and, and you, you survive the cannibals and you survive the harsh, uh, bleak wilderness, and then you, you then have a boss fight at the end um, or some puzzle which you've been taught how to solve beforehand. Warning this podcast contains spoilers for The Road. But, but what kind of happens? Is he just kind of. Like read, you know, this isn't a, this isn't a major thing. This is one paragraph in a book, right? But he kind of just stumbles and he dies. But it, it accentuates the fact that he's made all these sacrifices for his son. Mm-hmm. But I have a feeling if you were to put that into a game, um, or say you know you end your trilogy of games by having some sort of spirit child come out of a computer and say, well, actually, this this is going to go a slightly more spiritual way. Than That's never going to happen in a game. 
Even though there's nothing after that point, you're not physically playing anything more. Even though that's just how they chose to end their story, people would get upset because they're so used to the rubric that you have to win at the end. You have to be standing atop a pile of enemy corpses with the girl in one hand and the magic sword in the other. See, I, I, I would disagree with that. I don't think... I think, as I've always said with the Mass Effect thing, the problem was that the ending broke canon. Yeah. Um, not that it was... You know, not that the the hero died. Mm-hmm. Oh, by the way, but I wonder this if this that... podcast contains spoilers for Mass Effect Three. Yeah, <laughs> but I've I've seen a lot more, or I've been touched a lot more by smaller games. Um, bring up the old classic. The passage was probably the first one. In a Good while. old passage. The first one, Jason Roher's passage. The first one in a while where I sort of played it and I was very quiet after. I was like, that was that was different. I hadn't really expected um, that experience to come from it and. I so, think I think you told me to download it whenever we were working in the student newspaper, and you were like, "Play this for five minutes," and I sat and played it, and I was like, "Jesus Christ, that was pretty good." Yeah, yeah, and but but I think one of the challenges there, and when it was one of the the criticisms of it, you said, "Oh, you can just hold right in it, you walk along a little pixelated world." Too easy, and you you kind of see the passage of time. We'll say it that way, and that is actually missing the entire point of that game in mm-hmm. terms of his message in terms of the artist's point as far as I, I, I can see it where if you actually move down there's a maze and as you move through the maze you get little treasure chests you get points but if you find a companion you move as like a little unit of two people and you can't move through certain parts of the maze but you gain twice as many points yeah you, you gain twice as many points you get this nice little message of well is it more important to be you're more free when you're alone but ultimately, the experience, even though it's restricted, is more meaningful when you have someone to come along with you. And that's, that's, something, that's something I learned from it. And I don't think that's something that I didn't know before I played it. But it was a message that I hadn't really ex- uh, expected to see. Well, it makes it more salient, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, it's, funny, it's this thing where we talked about the passage when we're doing our usual, what I like to call precasting, which is when we talk about the contents of the podcast before we do it. So... Mm-hmm. By the time we get to actually recording the podcast, there's been this catharsis and we have nothing left to say. Um, <laughs> but we were talking about, you know, people play this and they miss the point. And is that because games have never had that? I mean, do we need trained on it? Because I've always thought that... I think that- you do. I think people do need training. You made a great point in a, a reality check earlier when you had your girlfriend trying to play, I think it was Infinity Blade or Mirror's Edge. Mirror's Edge, I think. Mirror's yeah. Edge. And it was about hitboxes and how you knew, like, oh, you can't hit this person in the head. You're going to have to hit them in the chest, essentially. Yeah. But... That to someone who hasn't played those games, it's unfamiliar language. Perhaps we're just too familiar with a certain language and we're just going to be um, blindsided. We're just going to have the sort of the blinkers on and we're not going to see the fact that there's this other area to explore. Literally, in the case of The Passage, there was a whole other area of the game to explore that no one did. But surely the best thing to aim for is something that's has such a compelling message that it's inescapable that in order to actually get through this you're gonna have to you're gonna have to think about it you're gonna have to look into yourself well that's you know. it and then that's a question of of framing and direction yeah. and and storytelling at that point you're gonna have to be able to lead them into it in a way which doesn't feel like you're forcing them so maybe, know, unless that's part of it so yeah. maybe one of the things you could say about passages although it's you know it's a it's a it's a moving piece of art um Perhaps it's not perfectly designed, and that it oh, could no. have been, you know, it would no. have been. There's, there's better ways to illustrate that to people, and to, they could have been more hinting to suggest to them you can move down. Yeah. I mean, there comes a point at which you don't want to hammer it home too hard. You don't want the big arrow going, "Move down to experience life, move right to die." You know, you don't, you don't want that kind of thing. But sometimes that's unavoidable. Yeah. Um. Uh, so, well, there's one game that's taught us something. 
Well, so um, I think, and there's just um, actually to go back, because I don't think anyone's read this, but it was something I wrote back at the newspaper. The other game that went along that with the, was The Marriage. Was um, Rod Humble? Rod Humble um, of The Sims, I believe. Um, of The Sims? Of The Sims. Born, head born of, of The Sims. Head of Sims 3, anyway. And it was a small, again, small sort of, you could tell, bedroom game that he'd sort of made. Well, it's only got um, two coloured squares of the main characters. Yeah, so. little pink square, little blue square. And they're kind of bouncing around this field. And then you've got sort of, I think they're like black circles falling as well. And it's, it's you know, apart from it being called The Marriage, and then the fact you've got a blue and pink, you can surmise then, okay, this is probably male and female. By watching the interaction between this blue square and this pink square, yet you can pick up, oh, this is how he feels about relationships. That but you can't pick that up. You can only pick that up because you, the name of the game is The Marriage, because you're but, aware this guy's trying to make a statement. Yeah, but that's that's no different than if you went into, again, a museum or a gallery and you saw something hanging on the wall, and the title of it is part of it. Yeah. It's part of the, the, fra- the way that you frame and present a piece is part of it. Um, and like then the time that you present it in and the context of it, that's all feeds into it. Um, it's kind of like whenever you give a song a title and it you know, contextualizes it. Yeah. Or like you were talking about that, that um, guitarist did that Thunderstorm song. Yes. And because it's called Thunderstorm, you know that the, the way he's beating down on the guitar is meant to represent raindrops during mm-hmm. a thunderstorm. So I thought you were, going to men- you were going to mention how like my latest bunch of songs was called Linea, which is named after my belt. Oh, uh, yeah. Which isn't so, quite the same. So Craig released an album of songs, and he called them Linea. And I was like, what does that mean? Has he just spelled Linear wrong? <laughs> and so I said, oh, Craig, why is the album called Linea? And he goes, oh, it's named after my belt. And I went, what? <laughs> and he, come, he, so he produced this. This happened about 10 minutes before we started recording. And he comes out with this belt and sets it down the table and he goes... I've had this belt since I was 14 years old. This belt's been with me to job interviews. <laughs> so It's not quite as pride, but yeah. It's, so it's this album of songs named after a world-traveling belt. Yeah, more or less. Um, so, uh, da, 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 da. so we're saying about kind of the context and sort of these games that if they're smaller, they're probably going to be able to pack in a certain message. I mean, maybe there's, and, and if they're going to be in a bigger game, it's more likely it's going to sit in the background. Yeah, it kind of um, has to. Or you're going to have little moments in a game. Like, I think you can pull apart loads of moments from the Metal Gear Solid games. And as, if you try to take it as a whole, you're like, this is just such a mess. And it's partly why I kind of like them. <laughs> but if you go into Metal Gear 4, you've got these little moments where it's like, oh, this is about the accelerated age of, of technology. Mm-hmm. The fact that Snake himself is an aged warrior um, up against all these newfangled kits. And then you see that when you play the PS1 emulated area, when you return to Shadow Moses from the first game. And then you revisit it in the new hardware and you realise that with a camera that you can move around with all these new gadgets, it's completely... It's totally different. It's all, yeah, like the first one's almost sterile in comparison. And so you can, you can read those moments there, but that's not what the game... Metal Gear 4 isn't yeah. about that. You kind of I kind of to... want a game to be explicitly about something other than just entertainment. Maybe it's just about putting your, your, your critic hat on, getting, getting, you know, putting your art hat on and going, right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to art this now. I'm going to mm. appreciate it as, as art. And the, the problem with games is that that's just not always possible. So some of no, these things or, start, start, some of them are about crashing a car into a wall. Some yeah, of them are about shooting a man in the face. And those times where people do pick out a moment um, and, and they'll write about it in a very kind of critical way, you always feel like they're having to sort of exclude other areas of the game. Yeah. You know, I, I want to be able to take something as a cohesive whole. And I could do that with Braid. Mm-hmm. Um, I think everything in that game is very intentional. No, and, absolutely. And, yeah. and, and you can... Even to the point of the stars that he put in, which are very horrible things you have to go out of the way to get. But again, the whole game is a game about 
games. It's about game design. See, I would contrast that with Limbo, which um, I haven't reviewed because I don't want to. Because whenever I tell people that I didn't like it, it'll damage my professional standing. I don't think so. Um, I don't. I just. I'm very confused what people were talking about when that um, came out. But I think that's. A, I think that is the opposite of Braid because I think Braid's a game with a lot of intention that you can read into, and mm. there's you know there's very clear signs that things don't match up, and you need to puzzle this out and come to your own conclusion. Yeah. Because I think Limbo is a game about nothing that people have been reading into beyond what it actually is. Limbo so, has no ending. Yeah. You basically just fall through a panel of glass and you see somebody and the game ends. And that's not, that's not me just brushing it over to try and you know from a ignorant position that is actually how it ends There's, all you can do is make up a bunch of rubbish about that whereas with Braid you have the little narrative pieces before every chapter you had all the interesting you have things the that are happening the, yeah. the games are the puzzles are designed and so this might be this will be like my next like opus this will be my next massive piece don't, but, pick, it, don't pick it up too much now well I, no but I think like on every puzzle you can actually say it's a, it's a commentary on a bit of game design so there's like one where you it's called the pet um, but you know it's before a boss fight the first boss fight in the game, in fact. And you go into the world and there's a little pit of spikes below you and the key is down there. Mm-hmm. And above that, there's a door which you unlock the key and then you go on and you face the, the boss. What, to get the key, what you need to do, it, it happens to be a special colour. Yeah, so you jump down, you grab it. You can rewind time and then pick it up. And then you jump over, open the door and then go fight the boss. So what that's saying is that in order to defeat this boss, you're going to have to die first in order to get mm-hmm. the key to unlock how to defeat him. And that's basically the case with all boss fights. And then what looks like this huge, scary monster in front of you, you then realize, oh, this is the weak spot here. This is his repetition cycle. Or this, this is his um, attack cycle. Here's the moment of a point to attack. Oh, I've missed my opportunity. I'll just wait another wee bit. Up oh, here's the second opportunity. And that's, that's what it's about. So I think like, with Braid, like, you can totally take every little moment and find something like that. Some of them are more obvious than that, though. Like, there's a Donkey Kong level Donkey that is Kong literally level. Donkey Kong, and it's a guy yeah. shooting Goombas out of a bazooka. Yeah. But what's clever about that is because whenever you move to the left, time rewinds. Mm-hmm. It it both tells people, here's how you need to beat this, and then as soon as you try to do it the way you, you're taught yeah. in an earlier game, you fail. Yeah, if you, if you try to run up like Mario would, you get blocked, yeah. and you can't make it. And so that's where, like... It, it's really, really clever because it's a game that's aimed at gamers and only gamers can ever get the most from it. Yeah. But that's because it relies on a, on a knowledge of gaming. But I like that. Well, it, that, there's nothing wrong with that. I don't think you need to make something for everyone. I mean, no, I read through um, Master and Margarita and you know, I loved it. I thought it was a fantastic book. Um, and then you know, I just liked the fact that you know, the devil had this cat and, you know, and they're in Russia and they're creating all this havoc. But when I went on the Wikipedia page, it's like, oh, this is actually a, a satire of 1930s Russian politics. I was like, well, okay, yeah, I didn't get any of that because I am not uh, interested in that area. But I was still able to get enjoyment out of it, but maybe just not the full intent of the the, art, the author in, the, in that case. But then again, you know, that's something where it's years in advance. I think to, so. to, to bring it back to the topic we loosely decided this podcast was going to be about, um, one thing that games have taught me is actually the, the triviality of entertainment in general and how you know, sometimes I'll play these games like, Something like, I don't know, Jet Set Radio or Crackdown or whatever. You're obsessed with collecting all the arbitrary yeah. MacGuffins that litter the stages. <laughs> and, um, you know, I feel like I shouldn't get caught up in the, the mastery of them or attaining scores. You know, it's whenever you watch those videos of people absolutely beasting Bayonetta and getting, like, you know, pure platinums the whole way through, nailing Ninja Gaiden, the hardest difficulty. Yeah. Like, that's okay for them to do, but you know what has taught me about myself is that I—that's not the kind of guy I am. And I'm happy enough to get to a certain point and then move on because it's like this whole hype thing about having a best game ever. You know, there's always going to be a new best game ever. Mm-hmm. So games have taught me a lot about advertising and the power of expectation and how I used to get so excited about these games coming out and then I, you know, 
I'd be really excited before they came out, and now they just seem like you know a few few years down the line, I can see that actually didn't really matter that much. Yeah, there's something very product driven about it, like in, in a kind of bag of crisps, Pepsi type feel to it. But I, um, I look at that in a very sad way yeah. because I enjoyed getting excited about those I things. I really but, loved getting, looking forward to getting a game at Christmas, and I looked forward to these new titles that were coming out. But like, I think, and think until until something comes out and it's in your own hands and you are playing it, and everything before that is marketing. So it, it's going to be skewed like that. That's because that's their purpose and that's the the right thing for them to do mm. is to get you excited about it and get you longing for it, and then you get your wallet out and buy it. But yeah, and then once it comes into your, you know, people's hands, then you can play it. Then, you know, it's up to the game to actually make an impression on you. Mm. Um, and it's rare that something will make a very lasting impression. So, what have games taught you then? Nothing. Nothing. Okay. Um, okay. Right. So uh, maybe maybe we've gone about this all wrong, and we started <laughs> off saying, you know, what did a game teach you about anything? And that came from my sort of cynical domain of thing and. The underlying presumption of that sentence is a game has never taught me anything. You know, mm. when did you ever learn anything from a game? Ha! Huh, how could you possibly? Okay, so let's frame it a different way. What do you want a game to teach <clears> you? <throat> what do you want to get from it? And that can be something that you get from a book or a film or music as well, or it can be something completely well, different that only games can do. Well, if if I wanted it to be the, the thing that's different, it would be the fact that I can make a choice. So, in terms of narrative. Um, and the sort of interesting scenarios that you might end up in. Okay, I'm not a, I'm not. Well, I don't want to say like I don't want to pick something too like domestic, but like I'm not a parent, say, um, and say there was a game where there's some sort of decision you have to make about the children. Well, I would want that, be that to be a sort of like what if scenario, to sort of explore that in a way. See, game, but games can't do that. They can take you into worlds you've never been into. Like back to Heavy Rain, there's a bit of the, yeah. the hilarious bit at the start where Jason gets lost in the supermarket, and that can, but that can teach me about what it's like to be a parent and what it's like to the stress of losing a child. Yeah, that, that's what I want. I want kind of more of that, I guess. Um, but the problem that I find is that often where it's then tied back to game mechanics in a way where I'm still. I might be on a, a front level thinking about that in terms of the story, but I'm then thinking in terms of well, the game mechanics side in terms of the points and scores here. Yeah, it's like it's like okay, the princess is missing. Why am I collecting all these coins? Or Alan's wake wife has disappeared. Why do we have to collect all these coffee thermoses? Yeah, or in Bioshock <laughs> where you've got the choice to save or harvest the little sisters. I'm still doing the math of like, well, is it more beneficial to me to have some Adam right now or do I want a new plasmid? Because if I get this new plasmid, it might make it easier for the future. And then like the discussion is sort of shifted away from whether or not it's right or wrong to... Um, Benefit to the player? Yeah, to, to, no, to, like, it's taken away from the actual decision we're making about little sisters, whether you want to save mm -hmm. them or not. And it's like, well, what's the benefit to me either way? Which is kind of a like a terrible. It's like a worse moral decision, if anything, because well, you're that, discarding life for your own benefit. Maybe that is the point. It's about the selfishness of the player, and again, back to their own agency. Yeah. I think. I mean, I think games in general, but probably more with the rise in online games. I think it tells you quite a lot about people. It tells you that you know most people are fundamentally quite decent. Um, yeah. um, but I wouldn't go so far to say as people are dicks. But um, what I think is that, you know, it, what they do teach you are how people are affected by anonymity. Now, that's not a feature of the game, per se. Mm. That is a, that's something that's come from the internet. Oh, that, um, yeah, and this even is, before, that's just psychology experiments for yeah. years have been about putting someone in one room, make them press a button, and something will happen to another room yeah. where someone else is pressing a button. And, you know, that's just the basis of it. But I guess that, that's just sort of turned back to my, I guess, since you used the word opus, back to my opus about, you know, 
how to rid the internet of scum and villainy. Um, <laughs> but I think that there there's definitely more to be had than that. There's more to be had than just playing an online game. I had a, I had a discussion. I said discussion. It was more of an argument with a guy on Twitter yesterday. And somebody had posed this question, you know, should developers do something, should they do something to stop the prevalence of racism in online games? And this guy just says, no way, you can't do anything. And I just said, and I said, well, all I said was that that's a, that's a pathetic Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, totally useless attitude to take. And he was like, well, you know, you're never going to stop it. You know, what are they meant to do? And I was like, they can moderate it. They can make it socially unacceptable. I can think, you know, I I managed to fit five ways they could fix things into a tweet. I was quite pleased with that. (laughs) But I think that's one thing that games would be good for is consciousness raising to make us more aware of issues like racism and and sexism. And that's coming, that's starting to come to the forefront, but it's only coming to the forefront in the enlightened academic mm. circles where people are analytically sitting down and doing this. Yeah, because if you look at how people are reacting in terms of just social networking and Twitter and Facebook and all that yeah. and stuff, where now, and I don't think it's I don't think it's wrong to say that when you've had like the Arab Spring, a lot more people in the West have been probably more engaged by it or more. In, yeah, again, just, I don't want to choose words to make it sound like it was an entertainment story, but they're certainly more aware of it. And yeah. the sort of troubles that other people have. I think in it was the world. good to make them aware that not everybody in those countries is like a subservient fundamentalist yeah. Islamist slave. You yeah, know, that, of course, in the same yeah. sense that it's not here. Yeah, yeah. The, but yeah. It, I remember watching this documentary about people in Iran once, and perhaps somebody was, maybe, in fact, it might have been somebody, I think it was somebody writing in a newspaper about how Arabic is translated into English. Right. And so we say things all the time like, oh my God, for God's sake, Jesus Christ. You know, we say things like that. <laughs> now, you know, I'm an atheist, and I say those things all the time. Sometimes people will, you know, deliberately steer away from that and they make up things like, oh, my science and things, you know, to be comical. But in the same way that, like, um, people in, um, you know, Muslim countries, Arabic has a lot of phrases the same as English, but they say things like, you know, God willing, thank God for that kind of thing. But whenever people translate English into other languages, they don't necessarily carry across that so literally. Mm -hmm. But whenever people translate Arabic into English, they often do. Yeah, because it it can play on prejudices and play on expectations yeah. and things like that. Yeah, if you've so, got an agenda, then yeah, it's like they're giving you uh, they're giving you the material, and you're just having to pack it into a gun. So maybe instead of um, maybe what games can do the same thing that things like documentary films do. Imagine if you had a game like let's take Gears of War, right? Mm. And you replace the characters in Gears of War with a gay man and a woman. As the two main characters instead of Marcus and Dom. Now you could probably make the obvious joke here about Gears of War actually being about two gay men, but what I'm saying is you could change those people into different sexual orientations and genders, and okay. the game would be exactly the same. Yes, and the okay, point of the yes. game would be not that you know let's make a joke about gay people. The point is these people are no different from us. Yeah. That that would be the point. The point would be to have like a, a trans a transgender main character, and the it's... point of the game is. They're a transgender main character. They shouldn't be treated any differently no, from anybody I mean, else. Yeah, they've got, all, they've got, you know, obviously people with their own issues and their own personalities, but that shouldn't affect the way we treat them, the way we look at them. Yeah, I mean that just in terms of representation of whatever ethnicities, mm-hmm. um, sexualities, whatever, um, you can sort of, you can kind of, it's not forgivable, but you can see how it happens in film and TV because you have actors and you have, you know, things to market. But when you're when you're drawing them out of nothing. Mm. And yet, it's still, still old, strong white guy on the cover. Yeah, pretty much. It's a bit. It's a bit of a disappointment. Um, Bi- Bioware is starting to do a bit of creep, where you can have, um, you can have gay romances in Mass Effect Three. Yeah, um, but they're, they're... and you there's the the like a guy on 
you go to the Citadel and this guy's like, oh yeah, I lost my husband in the conflict and everything. You're like, yay, people can have gay marriage in the future. Yeah, Fantastic. It's, it's a good start. You know, it's a good start. Yeah. It's just, um, I think then for the people who are really into, into that, they say, well, but it needs to go here, here and here. But it's like, yeah, it's compared to what's happening. I think it, I, I think know, it, six years ago, is it? Mm, I think we're probably making some progress. We're making some progress, but that doesn't mean we can't go faster and yeah. deeper. And I'm trying not to make this a disgusting sexual metaphor about going deeper and harder and faster. Well, but we can, you can always do more. Well, I don't think you successfully avoided making it if that was your intent. So yeah, I think we can always do more. And yeah. no, yeah, I like that, that. I like that idea of actually using the the fact that it's a lot of people network together. Yeah. And doing that kind of group consensus, well, not consensus, but like group psychology stuff, mm. that would be kind of interesting. That's how, that's how you change attitudes. You change the consensus. You make it so it's unacceptable for people to protest at a gay pride march. Yeah. You know, you make it unacceptable for people to make sexist comments or, you know, that horrible student lad, lads blog thing. That yes. You make, yeah. those, you make those things unacceptable by publicly speaking out against them and presenting it in media to people. And because games are so ubiquitous and so popular now and... I guess they're becoming more and more ingrained in culture. That's the that's the perfect way to do it. Well, I mean, if you look at how um, prevalent product placement is in games now, where you'll be driving actual, like an actual Jeep, or you'll have yeah. like an actual phone, like all that stuff, all the Quick. stuff you saw in Bond films yeah. ten years ago, you now see it in games now. And Max Payne three, he picks up a Nurofen and Sulfadine from yeah, Cadence. And, and when you've got those big um, sponsorship deals going on, what that tells you is that people recognise that this is something that's going to be seen by an influential demographic um, typically the young male soon to come into some money of his own or the young female coming into some money of her own or just impressionable kids <laughs> what are we telling them now we're telling them be a warlock be a mage it's not good enough Alan so I guess the take home message from this is that <laughs> games haven't taught us a lot so far but I think and hopefully you'll agree with me otherwise this has yeah. all been for nothing that there's a lot of potential for them to teach us things. Yeah. Um, not just about ourselves, but also about the way we interact with others. There's, there are more ways to interact with people in a game than by killing them. Yeah, people can't see it, but we're actually holding hands and swaying right now. Yeah, well, we always hold hands during podcasts. I thought that was common knowledge. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, I think we've uh, run the gamut. And I'm saying, so yeah, and that generally means we've come to the end of a segment. So yeah, uh, if you enjoy this, please go to splitfnscreen.net. You can find us on Twitter. I am at CP Wilson. If you want to actually follow someone who talks about games, you can follow Alan at, at AG Bear. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm totally got twice as many followers as Craig, so you know, you're in for, you're in for a, a bumpy ride. There's talk about games. There's pictures of what I'm having for lunch. Uh, uh, God, yeah, that's, all that's, kinds. That's, that's the warning, though. Alan Instagrams his meals now. We haven't spoken about that. We'll need to speak about I that. I don't Instagram all of them. I You've wouldn't Instagram inst porridge. No. I, I had a really nice bowl of chicken ramen, and I wanted everybody to know that I was eating this and it was tasty. Yeah. It's not just that. Pictures of games I've bought. There's that old car near your flat. I hope you know that I'm going to fade that out now and this is now going to be the end of the podcast. Thanks for listening.